Mark Caro, and welcome to episode 43 of Caro Pop. Our guest this week is drummer Frida Love Smith, who recently hung up her sticks for good after a long career playing with bands from Blake Babies. Sunshine Boys. If you're now lost where you once were found, it's just the world turning around. Frida's body let her know it was time. Drumming is hard physical work, which on one hand seems obvious, but on the other may be taken for granted by those of us who just want our favorite players to keep going forever. Frida has other things happening anyway. She has taught and counseled at Northwestern University and is now programming author-driven workshops through the Evanston Bookstore, Bookends and Beginnings. Frida is an author herself of the 2015 book, Red Velvet Underground, which has the perfect title for what it is, a memoir of her rock and roll experiences plus a chronicle of her teaching her older son to cook before he goes to college. It even includes recipes. Food and rock make for a natural combination because, as Frida describes here, food is a major part of the experience of being in a band. When you're in a van, traveling from gig to gig, meals provide the fuel and also, if it's good, give you something to look forward to. Blake Babies, the Boston band that propelled Julianne Hatfield, John Strom, and Frida to indie stardom in the late 80s and early 90s, was not a truck stop junk food kind of outfit. Those three tried to be healthy and sought out cool places to eat. Frida grew up in Bloomington, Indiana, and was into the punk scene when she began dating John Strom. He was a guitarist and drummer and encouraged her to learn drums so they could start a band. Drumming felt good, and she took inspiration from, yes, the Velvet Underground's Mo Tucker, whose unfancy approach is to play the song rather than to showcase her chops. When Frida and John desired a more vibrant rock scene, they moved to Boston at the age of 18. How did they get Allen Ginsberg to name their band Blake Babies? How and why did they pursue Juliana Hatfield to join their band? What was the Blake Babies dynamic like? How did they feel playing in a Boston scene that included the Pixies, Throwing Muses, Mission of Burma, Volcano Sons, Galaxy 500, and their friends, the Lemonheads? How did they enjoy recording those first three albums, Nicely Nicely, Earwig, and Sunburn? The All Music Guide calls 1990's Sunburn in many ways the last great college rock album, and it recently was re-released on vinyl on the American Laundromat label. Were the three of them more supportive or critical of each other? Why didn't Blake Baby stay together? And what did Frida think as Hatfield went on to a successful solo career? Frida and John Strom, still a couple, formed the band Antenna, which also included Jacob Smith, who would become Frida's husband. What supernatural method did they use to come up with the name of that band? After Antenna was done, Frida and Jacob Smith would form the band Mysteries of Life. also played in Some Girls, an all-female trio that reunited her with Juliana Hatfield. Frida became a regular at the Hot Stove Cool Music Charity Concerts, first in Boston, and then also in Chicago. There, she'd play with Band of Their Own, a larger all-female band that she assembled. 
Her most recent band, The Sunshine Boys, featured singer-guitarist-songwriter Dodd Julin and bassist Jacqueline Schimmel. They released two tuneful albums while spreading the sunshine live until Frida announced her retirement. How hard was it for her to come to that decision? What books is she writing now? Frida is thoughtful, funny, and has a talent for knowing what every situation her song calls for. She's one of those musicians whom everyone loves, and that's not hyperbole. You'll hear why in this Carol Pop conversation with Frida Love Smith. Frida, thanks for coming on uh, Carol Pop. Hey, Mark. My pleasure. Appreciate it. Um, so since we last talked, you've retired as a drummer. I'm officially retired. My last show was at Hot Stove Cool Music, the benefit at Metro in Chicago, where I just played a couple of songs with my former bandmate, Julian Hatfield. And I got to play a song with Kay Hanley from Letters to Cleo. And my very last song, my very last performance was a double drum performance playing ELO's don't bring me down really the ending yeah and that's, oh, that's awesome went. yeah who was the other drummer on that Gerald or the other drummer was Juliana's drummer Chris I'm, I'm just I know his last name I'm just forgetting at the moment um he's been touring with her for a while and it was a it was an impromptu like sound check decision where they were playing that song and somebody in Juliana's band said we should have two drummers on this and I just hopped on it was a blast it was insane oh that's awesome i would have loved to go to that show it was the same night as the zombies and oh, I, already, yeah. I already had my i already had my zombies uh ticket for that but uh but it's it's fitting for you to close it out at hot stove cool music because it's the you know celebration of boston all-stars and chicago all-stars and you're both yeah absolutely like getting involved with that was was really kind of it was kind of a turning point to me for like coming out of a really long stretch of not playing drums. Like when, um, you know, after Mistress of Life kind of fell apart and I moved to England and I hadn't played for a long time, was kind of getting settled in Boston and like getting involved in Hot Stove sort of was one of the things that drew me back into playing music. And it was super cool that there was that Boston, Chicago connection. It, it really like, it really reconnected me to my Boston years, which were a long, 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 long time ago. So yeah, it was super cool and very fitting that that was my last show. And especially that I got to play with Juliana, you know, who I started playing with when I was 18 wow. in 1986 or seven. <laughs> um, so yeah, it was, it was fortuitous for a lot of reasons and, and, uh, kind of a nice full circle. Yeah, Hot Stove Cool Music, for anyone who doesn't know, is this uh, charity concert that Theo Epstein uh, founded when he was uh, general manager or president of the Boston Red Sox and then uh, carried over 
when he became president of the Cubs and they, they would do this, you know, it became sort of a dual city thing where all these uh, Boston bands and Boston sports writers and all these people would come in for that. And it's a fantastic event. Um, and was, so was the first one where you started playing it at it again, was it a Boston one or a Chicago one you first played? I at? played at the Chicago one first and Len Casper, who was the, you know, Cubs announcer at the time um, was a fan of my band from the nineties, mysteries of life and had just figured out that we were actually living right down the, the road from each other. So we'd made that surprising connection. And he was very instrumental for a while in bringing musicians in to, to play right. at a hot show. So he invited my husband, Jake and I to perform as the mysteries of life. And I just, I just drank the Kool-Aid like right away. And I, I loved the spirit of it. It's got a real like summer camp feel and everybody plays with each other and plays each other's songs or plays kind of big crowd pleasing covers. And there oftentimes will be like five guitarists on stage or sometimes a couple of drummers, people playing percussion. It's, it's, it's such a big free for all. And it's just got like a real spirit of, of generosity and playfulness about it. So after that, I let Len know that I was really interested in being in the club and played at the, at the Boston event, which is where I actually had the idea with some of the other women who are involved in hot stoves to start an all woman band, like all woman, all star right. band, um, band of their own. We call it Boto, um, with Kay Hanley, Tanya Donnelly, uh, Gail Greenwood, Jen Trinan, and just, you know, whatever women we could rope into it, I think, at the most, we maybe had 10 women on stage with Boto. And that's become a really central part of, of Hot Stove. So even though I'm retiring, I'm kind of, I feel like that's a little bit of a legacy for me, Boto. We made our own jerseys. Oh, yeah. Um, you guys sounded great. I, I heard you guys, I heard you at uh, Metro uh, doing the Boto thing a few times, and it's fantastic. It's pretty fun. It's pretty powerful to have that many women on stage. It was sort of a response to the first year when I did it, when just as luck would have it, there were very, very, very few women in the lineup and it just was a bit of a sausage party. And, um, so it was, you know, meant to be kind of a correction for that and has, right. it has definitely served that purpose. Okay. So this retirement, does mm -hmm. that mean you will never pick up drums again? Or, you know, when hot stuff, cool music comes around and all your friends are playing and they're like, come on on stage, we're going to do another ELO song. We need a second drummer. Or are you going to do it? I told them I'd shake a tambourine, but I think I'm done hitting drums with sticks, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I'll definitely like, I'll always show up for the party. So is that, is that a thing where, I mean, drumming is, obviously a very physical activity. Is that, is that it? Is that the reason that you're done with it? Or is it like, you know, I've just, this is done. This is part of my life that I'm just closing that chapter. Yeah, it's, it's both. I mean, definitely I've suffered some wear and tear on my joints. I had back surgery a couple of years ago and it was definitely like caused by, by drumming. I, I never, I never had great technique or posture. Like I didn't really take drum lessons. So I, I probably could have avoided some of this if, if I'd taken more care, you know, early on, but as it is, I just sort of blew out my back and uh, it's definitely, I've definitely started to feel pain in my wrists and my fingers and my elbows and my shoulders, <laughs> pretty much all of them. Um, so, and, you know, and, and I also noticed that just sort of diminishing returns that I would have to practice a lot more just to maintain a kind of a, a baseline. Like my body was just giving up. I mean, I think that I've said a lot and, um, 
to, to friends and just to people asking me about this is that, I mean, just like baseball players don't play forever. Like bodies, bodies kind of give out or they change anyway. And my body was just done playing drums, but also like, I just, I have other things that I want to work on. And, and the thing with the diminishing returns, it's just like how much time and energy it was taking me to maintain. I, I really want to redirect some of that time and energy to writing, to teaching, to some of the other things that I'm. That's that great. I'm, You're a wonderful writer and everyone listening to this should pick up Red Velvet Underground. It's a wonderful memoir that you wrote and it gets at this intersection of rock and roll memoir and sort of food exploration journal with recipes and and it connects these things really nicely and in a way that totally makes sense even though you know i don't know that anyone else has done it um, <laughs> Thank you. and and you write you write in there about how um that being on tour and and being you know in a band makes you more aware of the food you're eating and 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 sort of needing to be healthy is that sort of the connection for you between the food and the music? Yeah, that's a lot of it. I mean, just that, especially on a longer tour, it, it can be so exhausting. It can really wear you out. And so like what you eat really matters, but I mean, it's kind of more than that. It's too like it being, being on tour can be sort of monotonous. It can get a little tedious and you do, I don't know, at least I did. I always looked forward to dinner. Like, where are we going to have dinner? It was like a fun diversion in the day. Um, aside from just the, what, what can get a little bit monotonous of just like loading in and doing sound check and making this, the set list and playing the show. Like they're there, like, again, there's like a real sameness to that. So it, it also is like a really fun way to get to know different cities um, just to you know, to eat in a restaurant that's special, that's specific to a place. I wrote a lot about Athens, Georgia, because I always had right. like really great meals there and like just really loved the vibe there. And, and, and eating there was like a way to get to know the place. And so I always loved that. And I don't know, there's more, I mean, I, I was vegetarian. I still am mostly, um, but back in those days, like pretty strictly so. And so, you know, finding a good vegetarian restaurant was a lot harder in the late eighties than it is now. You know, there's good quality food everywhere now, but there wasn't much then. So it was also a bit of a challenge, which was fun to find like a good, healthy, nourishing vegetarian meal. It's easy in California. It's always easy in California. It could be a lot harder in Missouri. Right. Yeah. I think most people think of, you know, being on tour is you're in a stinky van and then you're eating a lot of terrible, unhealthy, fast food. Um, so it's, it seems like you were not taking that approach. I mean, I, you know, when I visit a city, it's always about like where you eat, like to me, but, but I, but I'm, I'm impressed that you were able to do that while also, you know, having to do deal with all of the schedule stuff and everything else of being in a rock band that's going from city to city. Yeah. That had to do with my, with my bandmates too, that we like, we, we really like shared that interest in food from, from a young age that we, we all cared about food. We liked food. We all liked to cook, you know, even though we were young. And so I think that that did distinguish us. I mean, we would definitely come across bands that would just go to McDonald's and like, that was just never, that was never us. Like if we could, if we could avoid it, we always wanted something better quality, something more interesting, something specifically local. Um, so yeah, it was, I was lucky that we were, we were like-minded in that regard. 
Yeah, you write in the book, being a musician on tour was the life experience that shattered my uptightness and helped me embrace a more flexible diet. Uh, It didn't take me long to discover that food was key to everything, stability, sanity, civility, and health, and plain pasta would not cut it. It's like, it's almost like a sometimes the the meals almost became secondary to the gigs or, or at at any rate, like a good gig wasn't really possible without a good meal. What about the shattered your uptightness part of the the equation there? Yeah. I mean, I just think, um, that kind of refers to an earlier anecdote when I was like on this really strict low fat diet and I went to a friend's house for dinner and I'm like, I'm vegetarian. He's like, okay. And he made me, he made this, um, this really creamy pasta dish with like a lot of butter and cream. And I, I refused to eat it. I was just like, I just want plain pasta with like some salt and pepper on it. And, uh, and, and, you know, I just, I really, I think I wrote this, like, I really cringe recalling that, that, um, that I was that rigid and that uptight. And so, you know, being, being on tour, I couldn't afford to deny myself to that extent. So I guess I learned to be more adaptable, not to be so like narrow and tight and strict. And if someone puts a plate of, you know, creamy pasta in front of you, like eat it <laughs> and, and <laughs> for it. Is, is that also when you're just traveling in such tight quarters on such long days, do you also just have to shed certain you know, parts of yourself or inhibitions because you have to like, make sure you're getting along with everyone all the time. And it's, it could be a challenge. Yeah. It's such a forced intimacy. Um, but you know, and meals kind of give, give you a chance to connect in a different way too. So it can actually be really good for the band relationship that, you know, if the show didn't go really well, that can create tension, unhappiness. Um, if you're just sort of sick of being in a van with each other, but if you're sitting together and sharing a nice meal, there's a different energy that comes with that. And that can be bonding and it can, it can bring some, some relief from the, um, just like, yeah, the intensity and the stress that inevitably comes. I I mean, I hope all musicians experience that. I think they probably do. Well, the fact that you all valued that, like you all valued, you know, eating healthily and eating together, I would think that, I would think there would be a lot of bands where everyone sort of goes off and does their own thing. And some of them are just chowing down whatever, you know, they can grab on the corner or something. Yeah, I think that's right. I think, I mean, eating together, it's, it, it cuts pretty deep. It's pretty primal. And it is, it's, it's a, a good basic way to connect and to stay connected. And, and in the book, you, you carry that on to like this, you know, you, you sort of fast forward to, you know, you living in, uh, you know, the Chicago area and working at Northwestern and bonding with your sons, uh, cooking and sharing recipes and and that's and that's the sort of connective thing so it was like sort of connecting you with your band and now it's connecting you with family um is that is that just something that was sort of instinctual for you or did you sort of have to discover that hey we're we're bonding together because of this yeah i mean i think it it was a little bit more practical at the at the onset like i had this idea that i wanted to teach my oldest son how to cook before he went away to college just as um yeah i just wanted to give him some basic life skills and i kind of felt like as you know when we got to like whatever his senior year i felt like i should have done that earlier i felt like i should have been teaching him to cook all along and it was just something that just didn't happen it kind of fell by the wayside so it was a sort of panicky 
parenting moment where I was like, Oh my gosh, like I, I should have been doing this when I'm going to do it now. And so we, we just, we started doing these cooking lessons and he fortunately was game because he he's like me, like he loves food and he was open to it. Um, so it kind of just started out like that with just these, these cooking lessons for this practical end. Um, but yeah, it kind of opened up, um, into a bigger thing and, and it definitely, it brought me back to my experience with those early Blake babies tours, because I was about the same age as Jonah was when he was preparing wow. to, go to college. And so it, it, it definitely connected me back to that time in my life. And like inevitably led to some comparisons between like what I was like, then what I was doing then what he was like. Um, and food was just like a bit of a, a, a thread, through all of these, these different, um, memories and thoughts that I was having. Are you someone who journals or did you start off with this just sort of sitting down going, wait a minute, I think this is a book and then started writing a book. I think I, 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 I was journaling at the time cause I was writing down the recipes, many of which became like recipes in the book. And I had an idea of like, maybe it would be a blog which ultimately I did start a blog. Um, but I, I think I did also always have it in the back of my mind, like, Oh, this could be a book. And I, I didn't at all imagine it as being about my days as a musician or any of that. I just thought a book about teaching my kids how to cook. Like I had a pretty narrow conception of it. Um, but I couldn't, I couldn't sell it when I tried. And a, a couple of people said like, Hey, like, weren't you in some bands? Like, why aren't you writing about that? And I was just like, well, no, this book isn't that's not what I'm writing about, but I, I, I did have some, some aha moments in the process of doing those cooking lessons where I'm like, Oh, actually I, I see how I could wrap that in. It ended up making a much, a much more fun book to write. And, um, it's, I mean, it's, it's weird. Like you say, it's not like they're, it's a, it's not really a genre. <laughs> I don't even know, really know it what it should be though. Call. Yeah. <laughs> Food, rock, memoir, cook. And well, and you have the, the perfect, title. I mean, my God, like at, at some point when you thought of that, did you think, Oh, there you go. I wish I could say that I thought of it. It was actually a publisher that, um, that was interested in the book and I I'd kicked around a few titles and she's like, I've got the perfect title. And, and once I had that, then I, then I did know what the book was because yeah, like I said, first it was like, just going to be this thing. And then I was like, Oh, maybe it could be more. And yeah, once I had the title, I was like, okay, I know what this I know. Well, yeah, well, because well, Red Velvet Underground just does it because you got the Red Velvet food, Velvet Underground, yeah. really cool rock band and also cool rock band with a, you know, female drummer who, uh, you know, plays the song and isn't like a big showboat. And uh, yeah, and so, a very influential band and a very influential drummer for me. Personally. Absolutely. I'm on the way out of my own mind. She said it's straight out. Infinity girl, she's gonna save the day. When you first start drumming, like what was it that got you interested in that instrument as opposed to any other instrument? I just, I wanted to play an instrument. I love music so much. And in, I grew up in Bloomington, Indiana, which had, had still has, and just an amazingly vibrant music scene. At the time, um, I was most interested in the punk scene. There were street dances, all ages shows, and I just wanted to be 
person in a band. Um, I'd actually, I tried to play bass for a little while because I thought that's what girls are supposed to play <laughs> in bands. Um, I played guitar a little bit, but I just, I didn't really click with it. Um, but then my, my boyfriend at the time, John Strom, who would later be my bandmate in Blake Babies and Antenna, um, he was the drummer. He played in punk bands. He played in a band called Killing Children. And uh, <laughs> yeah, I can't remember. <laughs> great name, really great names. And uh, he started playing guitar and he was like taking off on guitar like right away. As soon as he picked it up, he's just like, this is my thing. And so he wanted to start a band. And so he taught me how to play drums. He had drums in his basement. So it was like, it was really lucky. And I just, um, I took to it really quickly. Like I liked it. I, I liked rhythm. I, um, I liked dancing. I'd been a cheerleader in middle school. Like I kind of clicked with body and rhythm. So drums felt, drums felt good. And, and, uh, I think he, I think the first song we ever played together was sweet Jane. He played guitar and I there played you go. drums and we're like, that's it. Like, let's start a band. <laughs> um, I never really, I, it took me a long time to, I don't know, to push, to push myself on drums. Like I just kind of stuck with what felt natural and what came easily to me, but it was sort of like that, that punk poster. That's like, here's a chord, here's a chord, here's a chord, like now start a band. Right. Um, it was kind of that, like I, I didn't wait to have any, um, technique or expertise. I was just like, I can play a beat. What more do I need? Like, let's go. Were you influenced by any particular drummers like Mo Tucker of the Velvet Underground or anyone else? Yeah, I was really inspired by Mo Tucker. Um, There's this great punk band called the Dicks that I saw that had a female drummer who I just thought was like really badass. Um, but like, just generally speaking, like I was, re I was really influenced by the punk bands that I was seeing, but then also by the kind of post-punk that was starting to emerge. Like I, like I loved the first REM record, the replacements and Husker Du, like all of that music really motivated really me really moved really moved me more than any like specific player just more like the bands and the songs and the sound and the feel of all of that music like that's that's what I wanted to be doing that's what I wanted to be a part of and that's why we moved to Boston like we felt like you know Bloomington was such a great place but it didn't quite feel like there was enough of a music scene there to um to launch a new band, to kind of do what we, what we dreamed of doing. And, and Boston was, Boston was the place. Did you embrace any of like the look of punk or was it really just sort of like the sound of punk? Because I don't, I don't remember ever seeing you looking punky and the Blake babies yeah. also all looked pretty not punky, but at the same time you could be aggressive and, and everything else. So. Yeah, no, I think by the time we got to the Blake babies, um, yeah, we just all just looked terrible and like <laughs> wore no. terrible clothes and like, <laughs> um, but, but no, no, definitely. Like when I met John Strom Bloomington, I had like a little spiky mullet <laughs> that I sometimes spray painted purple and, um, <laughs> wore like those little buttons on my army fatigue jacket and had combat boots, um, so yeah, I definitely, I, I liked the style of punk, but I didn't stick with it for very long. I just ended up, I don't know, in the Blake days, we all just had like this very plain aesthetic. And how was, how'd you choose Boston instead of like, you know, Chicago, which is closer to Bloomington or some other city, New York? 
Yeah, Chicago was, would have been the obvious choice, but it was actually because John Strom wanted to go to the um, wanted to go to Berkeley, the, the music school in Boston, and I think that was an arrangement that like made his parents comfortable. Like he, you know, my parents were kind of okay with me being like, I just want to go off and uh, start a band. But his parents wanted that to be like in the context of higher education. Right. Um, so he got into Berkeley and I just moved out there with him. I mean, we were 18 and I just got a job. And, you know, by the end of that first year that we lived there, we'd met Juliana and formed the Blake Babies and played our first show. Cause she was at uh, uh, Berkeley also, right? She was there too. Yeah. So we've, we've, we met each other there. And what was the, what was the connection? Like, how did you guys realize, Oh, she's the perfect person to have in this band. It was really a stalking situation. Um, so I, I mean, we just, we noticed each other and she and I really noticed each other. And one night I was just drunk enough to, to go knock on her dorm room door, which I found in it. Like, yeah, in a somewhat stocky way, just by like asking other people on her floor, like, where does this person, where's this person's room? But, um, it was almost like she'd been expecting us. I mean, it was me and John knocked on her door. She opened the door. We came in, talked to her, like, do you want to start a band? Had never heard her play, had never heard her sing. Had, yeah, you know, that's what I was going to ask if she'd like, if she'd played like open mics or something or no, no, just no idea, but just like, I just knew, I just knew. And, and I think she, she had a guitar in her room and I, I think she played that night. She like played a couple of songs that she'd written and she sang. Yeah, that's right. She did. And, uh, I, I just, I loved her voice immediately. She was already so good. Just like so much raw talent and she was just ready. She was just so ready to start a band. That's what she was there for. Just like, that's what we were there for. I was uh, writing for the Boston Phoenix in the late eighties. And I remember seeing the Blake babies at the rat. Oh yeah. And that's one of the think, first places I played. Yeah, I, I, I don't remember what the bill was. If it, it was you and someone else, whether it was like game theory or American music club, I'm trying to think of other bands I saw at the rat, but I remember specifically that you were a band that I didn't know. And I was just like, Oh, I like them. And then, and then like later I would sort of see that you're putting out music. I'm like, I saw them at the rat. And then later I met you in Evanston and I'm like, I saw you at the rat. A long time ago. <laughs> Yeah, we played there a lot. I, I I wrote about this in my book, but I actually got us banned from there for a little while because I drank in the in I drank in the rat underage, and and ended up getting really belligerent one night and thrown out. You were back. belligerent. <laughs> yeah, and like I literally really have a hard time out. imagining you belligerent. Yeah, wow. I think I was not a great drunk really wow. back then. Uh, Camper Van Beethoven had a song in which. Uh, that came out in 88, I think it was, which David Lowry sang, uh, never going to go back to the rat and play another mafia show again. <laughs> I like that band a lot. So, yeah, but that was sort of like, I mean, I'd already been to the rat at that point, but I'm like, Oh, it's the same rat. I think he's singing about I think what was so, the, yeah. what, what was the Boston scene like for you guys? Like, did you feel like you sort of fit in or were you sort of like kind of off to the side somewhere? I feel like we kind of fit in, but I, I always felt a bit intimidated by how great everybody else was and, and always felt like we just didn't quite 
measure up. We weren't as great as the throwing muses or the pixies or the volcano suns or mission of Burma. We weren't as good as big dipper. Um, we weren't as good as galaxy 500. We weren't as good as Buffalo. Tom. <laughs> I mean, they were just, they were, I mean, good being a really useless word there. Cause it's, cause it, cause it's, you know, you guys aren't actually in competition, but I can understand like you're looking at it was, a, it was a good scene then. I mean, there were just like a lot of bands to see. Like I, I was missing bands like the Pixies. I'm like, wait, why didn't I see the Pixies when I was out there? I saw the Liars a lot. And then. Oh yeah. But- They're a fantastic band too. I mean, yeah, it was just the, the city, the little city was exploding with just incredible bands and so i mean it, it was inspiring it was motivating um but i i think we had a, like a little bit of an inferiority complex but i think it was probably good for us it made us work harder were bands nice to each other or was it kind of competitive some bands were nice yeah um mostly i feel like people were were generous and helpful uh, it took me a while to kind of get used to just the way people were in boston like i felt like just people seemed a little chilly. I guess that's kind of a cliche, but I yeah, don't think there's, really... there's a reason for that cliche though. Yeah. It's a, it's a thing, you know? And then, you know, I lived in the UK years later and it's similar, you know, just like, why is everyone mean here? But they're not, they're not. It's just like, I'm from the Midwest and there's, there's like a different affect for sure. Just like a different way of interacting. Um, but yeah, no, but mostly people were, were friendly and supportive. And I think just probably looked at us as like just these kids kind of that needed, needed a little help. (laughs) Did you enjoy the performing part of it? Did you like playing out in all the clubs? I liked the idea of it, but, um, but I, I definitely struggled and you know, this is something I've written about too, but I just, I did, jump in to being in a band before I was really ready to do that. And so I'd, I'd oftentimes like just feel kind of bad about myself after a gig. Like I dropped my sticks or I played stuff too slow or I forgot a part. Um, we, we were, we were all pretty hard on ourselves, which maybe is, is, is a characteristic of just that age and being, being self-conscious and, and being like a little bit down on yourself. So I, I mean, I liked some things about it, a lot. I liked it being a person in a band. I liked being on the scene. I liked knowing the other bands and I liked the music that we were making. I liked our songs. I loved being in a band with Juliana and John. I, I thought they were both like really talented and they're writing good songs, which is the thing that I care about the most songs, songs. Um, but yeah, I mean, I was really conflicted, you know, even from the start, like, should I even be doing this? Like, do I have what it takes? And, uh, I that, that didn't ever entirely go away, to be honest. Were you John and Juliana hard on each other or were you just hard on yourselves? Both. Yeah, both. We could be hard on each other and, we all, especially Juliana and I, I don't know. I don't know. John, I think had more confidence, a little more experience, um, more technical ability. Like at the start, I know that Juliana and I were both really hard on ourselves. And I know that we were all kind of hard on, hard on each other, not horrible or anything like that, but. But uh, but if you're going to, like, if you're going to end a show, like you could end a show and be like, Oh, that was great. And then you get into show be like, Oh, you know, you messed up that song. And if, if you all kind of like start doing these negative postmortems, I could see that would be more difficult. Yeah. We would get into that a little bit sometimes, but, um, no, you know, I don't think we're like pathological 
about it, but just a little bit, but I mean, I always thought it was cool. Like I heard that speaking of camper van Beethoven, that they would always like debrief after a show, like, um, in a really productive way, like, Oh, like this song went really well, or that one, like we need to work on this bit. And, um, we were never like as systematic or organized as them, but I always thought that was kind of cool that, that they did that. By the way, of course, there's, there's a story that Allen Ginsberg named your band. That is true. That is true. So, so tell me, did you go up to him and ask him to name your band or do you guys like in the audience and said, name our band? Like, how did that work? Yeah, we went right up to him. So we saw him read at Harvard university and we'd actually agreed beforehand that we were going to ask him during questions, like, what should we name our band? And we like, we made a pact that whatever came out of his mouth, like, <laughs> that was it. And so we were completely dedicated to this. Like we were all in. And so we, there were people milling around on stage afterwards. And so we went up and asked him, you know, Mr. Ginsburg, what should we name our band? And he looked at us and he just said, Blake babies. And he, he'd done a, he was very into William Blake and he'd actually done a Blake sing-along at that reading. Um, so it was, you know, Blake was clearly on his mind. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, it, I think it's a great, a great band it's, name. It's catchy. It's a, it got alliteration. Did all three of you agree it was good? Or w- was there a, one of you who was like, you know what? We don't have to do Allen Ginsberg's band name. It was so th- this happened before Juliana was in the band. So it was just John and I and this other woman, Anne, who was going to play bass, but we didn't end up working with her. So when we knocked on Juliana's dorm room door that night, we were like, we already have a band name. You know, we've got a drummer. We've, we've got a guitar player. We need a singer. And it's going to be this mystery woman that, that we've been <laughs> following around. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I think, I don't know if Juliana, um, even had like the option of rejecting the band name or if it was ever like on the table, but we sort of just, we really stuck with it. We, we really committed to that. Right. You never had to say, come on, Juliana, Allen Ginsberg wrote this, so we have to do it. I think she was game. Antenna was your next band and you got that name from a Ouija board. <laughs> we did. Yeah. Um, during this weird stretch of time, uh, John Strom, um, Jake Smith, my now husband and I were consulting Ouija board and it's so hard to think of a band name, you know, why not ask the Ouija board? This is good <laughs> a good as uh, technique as any. And yeah, it spelled out antenna and we're like, perfect. That's great. See, I feel like if I did, if I asked a Ouija board for a band name, the band would be called. <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. Maybe. <laughs> did you like the name antenna? Were you happy that that's what came out of the Ouija board? And I liked it a lot. Yeah. I thought I liked that band name too. Band names are so hard, but I, yeah, I felt, I felt pretty good about that one. But to go back to Blake babies again, was there like any moment where you thought, wow, this is really happening. Like whether it was a show or, you know, an event like getting signed or hearing a record for the first time, but like, was there, was there a moment where you thought, wait, we're going to make it. I wish I could say yes. Like we, we, we kind of continued to be hard on ourselves and sometimes to the extent that we couldn't really see and appreciate the, the little bit of success that we we're having. But when we, when we sold out, Cabaret Metro for the first time 
I really mm-hmm. did feel like, Oh, like that's, that's great. That's a big deal. That means something. And it really meant something to me because I mean, growing up in Bloomington, Chicago was like you pointed out earlier, it's like the closest big city. And I'd come up to see shows. Sometimes I, I'd, I saw, um, Husker do at cabaret Metro. And I can't remember what year, if it would have been like 84 or 85. And it just seemed like the ultimate place. Yeah. Just, it couldn't be anything better than that. So I, I think a lot of, a lot of people in Chicago bands that have had that experience, like would, wouldn't, will know what I'm talking about. So yeah, I, I did feel like that was, that was a moment and that I could like appreciate and, and celebrate, but by and large, it just always seemed like we were never as successful as we wanted to be, or, or as successful as everyone was like expecting us to be, or putting pressure on us to be. So, um, it didn't get to revel in it as much as I, should have none of us did as much as we should have it kind of seems like it was that with like that way with a lot of bands almost like no matter how popular they became um you know at the time it's, it seems like i don't know the pixies get back together and everyone's like oh we really pre- we really appreciate it now or you know like you know when they were able to do it the, the four of them for a while at least or you know pavement occasionally get back together and they're like oh wait a minute we had something here but it's like it seems like it's sort of a a, i don't know if it's a rock and roll thing or or what and also just how hard it is being in a band where it becomes harder to appreciate what you're accomplishing until you sort of get past it and you look back and you go oh we did some really good records and music here yeah i don't know if it's a little bit of human nature of just of just struggling to appreciate what you've got when you've got it and hindsight is uh can be eliminating for sure i mean i saw you guys do a blake baby show what was that like four years ago five years ago something like that it's oh yeah it's yeah and um and you've and you re- reunited a few other times as well was that fun to do that like did you appreciate that yeah it was really just fun like for sure because it was an experience that stripped of any ambition because those shows were not about working towards some kind of future, but just about having like a nice moment of reconnection and falling back on songs that, that were, I don't know, just kind of part of who we are in this, in a way and, and, and re, you know, reconnecting with, with the first people that I played music with for me personally. So yeah, more of like a reunion and a celebration with no, ambition. So there, there's like a kind of purity, I think, to those experiences where you'd be really just doing it for love. That sounds corny, but no, 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 not at all. Well, and, you know, and obviously you'd had a close relationship with John for a long time. Um, did you, did you keep in touch with everyone for a while afterwards? I mean, Juliana was the one who sort of went off on her own first and had success. Yeah. Um, were you all still in touch there? Or was there a while when that wasn't the case? Yeah, no, we mostly kept in touch all the while and mostly stayed friends, but it got easier to be friend, to be better friends kind of as the years passed. Um, I mean, John and I have, have always stayed pretty close. Um, she's really, you know, really one of my, one of my best friends and, and Juliana too, like I love her. So yeah, I mean, it was, it, it was instantly easier to be friends when we weren't in a band together because that had gotten pretty stressful and bickery at the end. And so just dropping that, um, gave us all like a little bit of space to find a new way to, to relate to each other. So I, I have like, 
really only like good feelings about, about those guys. When, when Juliana was having success, was that a sort of unambiguously good thing or was there a little bit of, Oh, this could have been us sort of thing. I guess both. Like, I mean, I, I, I didn't regret that we broke up because it it did become pretty not fun and uncomfortable. And I I always knew that she would be a, you know, be successful because I just, she's just astonishingly talented. So mostly I was happy for her, but definitely like feeling sometimes feelings like, Oh, if we had, if we could have stuck it out, like we probably could have had more success. It's not something that I obsessed about but it definitely like it definitely crossed my mind and i i mean for a lot of her her most successful years i was you know starting a family too so it, sometimes i feel like i kind of missed some of that like maybe it would have been harder if i'd still been like trying to make it in music at the same time and like not <laughs> making it um but i sort of did i ditched it for a while and got married, had babies, and maybe that helped that I didn't feel competitive. Does that right. make sense? Well, yeah. And it's, and you brought these amazing people into the world and taught them how to cook and wrote a book about <laughs> it, but also just like experienced all that stuff. And it's like, you know, it's, you can't, it's hard to sort of look back on any, I mean, my having done similar things with girls instead of boys, but it's, it's hard to look back on any of that stuff and think, well, you know, you couldn't really change any of the course at that point because it's Absolutely. like, Absolutely. Yeah. I wouldn't, wouldn't change a thing. Um, and it's interesting too. Uh, so you were saying with sunburn is, uh, just being re-released the Blake babies album. Yeah, it's been, it's just come out, um, at the end of June released by American Laundromat, who's a a really cool little label. They actually put out Juliana's records, Tanya Donnelly, and just a few other artists. And yeah, they released it on vinyl, different colored vinyl. And it's, so it's not out in in any other new formats. It's just, yeah, just re-released on vinyl. That's all, that's all you need. It should be on vinyl. Yeah. It's cool. It's really nice to have it. Do you go back and listen to those records and are you heartened that people think, you know, that, that there's a market for, to go back and listen to, you know, Blake baby's records after, you know, what, 30 years. Yeah. I'm amazed and, and, and grateful that there are a few people out there that, that do care. Uh, I don't, I don't, I don't routinely listen to that stuff, but when, when we've had shows as, you know, as we have like some recently, I have listened and, you know, mixed feelings about it. Some of the production maybe sounds a little dated and, um, I don't, I don't love all of the songs, but like I, my overall feeling about it is like, I feel pretty positive about it. I feel proud of what we did. I know how hard we worked and I just feel kind of lucky that it's, that it's still around, that people can still listen to it and people still find it. You know, I worked as an academic advisor at Northwestern for 10 years until very, very recently. And you know, there's a really strong college radio station at Northwestern WNUR. Right. And, you know, almost every year there'll be one student that finds me and it's like, Oh, I just heard the Blake babies for the first time. And I played it on my college radio show. So we're, um, we're like, uh, eternal college radio band on a very small scale <laughs> but but i appreciate that the music is it's still there and hopefully it'll it'll be there so and then you had antenna you uh, you were in mysteries of life with jake and and you did some reunion stuff with him not that long ago too you did some mysteries of life shows and then 
mentioned just in the Sunshine Boys, um, do any of these experiences kind of stand out as like, well, this was like my happy band experience? Did you enjoy it more as you went along? Yeah, kind of. I think I learned learned to relax and enjoy it more. Like the older I got, um, you know, if the Blake babies was like a little stressful and, and uptight, like antenna was definitely looser and more experimental. Mysteries of life was just like very comfortable and more kind of homey. I'm just like kind of coming to terms with my limitations as a drummer and just like embracing, embracing them and working within those constraints. And that like, that was kind of a relief. Um, I played in a band called some girls with Juliana, which is like an all woman band. It's like really reinforced, like how much I love playing with women. Like that was really fun. Kind of had a band in, in Bloomington called Lola, which was also like an all female band. So yeah, I felt like it was just, yeah, always like a process of like discovery and like getting more comfortable and uh, lightening up a little bit. And then sunshine boys was like, I don't know. That was my band that was like finding love when you're 85, when you like least <laughs> expect it. It's like, I, I, I just can't believe that I had an opportunity to start a new band basically in my fifties when I, you know, pretty much given up on the whole concept and just figured like that part of my life is over now. Like I did that and that was great. But then I got these six years of playing music with, with Doug Doolin and Jackie Schimmel, which was just like an incredible treat and probably my most, you know, one of my most fun band experiences because it's just like, just such a bonus. Right. That was fun for me because I'd known Doug since he was in the slugs and I was covering local music when I moved back to Chicago from being in Boston. And then, then he was in Poi Dog, but I'd seen him for a long time. And Jackie, I'd seen play with Justin Roberts and other people. And also she's just like, like we talk movies together and she's a fantastic person and a great bassist. Yeah. And then, yeah. and then, and then you, I'd gotten to know and all of a sudden I'm like, Oh, it's like a super group. The three of you. <laughs> and, uh, you know, you play space or you play, you know, squeeze box or wherever. And it just yeah. always sounded great. And there was nothing sort of, you didn't need like a huge kit. You could play in the corner of a bookstore and you sound fantastic. Or you could play at the wine goddess amid a bunch of, uh, wine bottles, which if mm -hmm. people who don't live in the Chicago area or Evanston don't know that the wine goddess is this awesome place to see really good musicians in this intimate setting. And then you could play in a club and, and rock that as well. Um, so it always seemed like you were having a good time. Yeah. And it was a really versatile band and, you know, we had fun sort of adapting to different, different scenarios, different performance spaces, and just always worked so well together with just a very, friendly vibe and shared work ethic. It was, it was a joy to be in that band. And they're not, they're not going on with a new drummer though, as far as you know. No, I really hope that they'll, they don't want to keep playing as the sunshine boys, but I hope that they'll form a new band with the new drummer um, and, uh, and keep going. Cause I, the, they're, those two aren't done yet. I'm done. <laughs> I feel very <laughs> peaceful about that, but I'm, I'm really cheering them on to continue. And I think, I think that they will. Do you noodle around with music at home and do you, and do you and Jake like sing stuff together or do you? Not really, but during, during like the most locked down part of the pandemic, we made a mysteries of life record in Jake's closet. And that was really 
a really enjoyable diversion, like when we needed it badly, it actually just like gave us something to look forward to every day after dinner, we'd like go into the closet and set up a microphone and, and record a song. Um, and that, that is, um, Blue Jay, which is a mysteries of life album that came out last year. Right. But we never performed. Jake's not really interested in live performance much. And so we didn't do any gigs to support that. But he's got uh, he's got a new batch of songs. So, I mean, I can see that happening again, although I've told him I won't play drums, but I'll hit a cowbell or, you know, again, shake a tambourine or something like that if he wants it. He plays guitar a lot around the house, but I don't really play guitar sometimes. I mean, when I had gigs to prepare for, I would just like practice on my drum pad. We live in a third floor apartment. So the setting up the drum set was never an option here. Right. Yeah. You used to be RAs at, at Northwestern, not RAs, but what would you, what would you call what you were, you were, you were like, we were faculty in residence. So yeah, we had this big, this big corner apartment of the dorm and I I could totally set up my drums and play because the nearest ears were the frat house next door and they didn't care. And you're, and you're setting up this kind of university, like online university programming for the, the awesome bookstore in town now bookends. Yeah. Yeah. So that is one of my new projects that I'm the programming director for um, bookends university, which we're calling it, which is yeah the curricular arm of bookends and beginnings bookstore, just amazing independent bookstore in Evanston. One of the things that other things that kept me going during the pandemic. Um, So yeah, I'm, I'm booking authors to teach workshops or classes. It's all author led. So it could be, um, we're, we're offering writing workshops and writing classes, but also cooking because the, the, the bookstore is really known for its cookbooks among other things. So we've had a sourdough making workshop, a pie making class. We'll have more things like that. But I was just, today I was just emailing with someone who's writing a book about like how to, how to save enough money for retirement when the economy sucks. That's not the title, but it's something like that. It could and, be. Uh, yeah. It's basically that. So I'm having him come and teach, teach a workshop, um, when his book comes out in January. So yeah, it's like community, community education taught by writers. It's very exciting to me. Is that a fun new thing to be doing after all your years at Northwestern? Yeah, it is. It is. I'm, I'm still teaching part-time at Northwestern in the, like the night school, the school of uh, professional studies, but, um, but yeah, I think adult education and community education are really what's speaking to me right now. So the work at bookends is just giving me the perfect opportunity to do that. And, And I'm teaching there a little bit as well, too. I just taught a class on reading and writing the personal essay that was just super, super fun. There's, there's a lot of people that do want to take classes and continue their education without like paying thousands and thousands of dollars for it. So it feels like, it feels like a really cool thing. That's like very much in line with the ethos of, of the bookstore. And you're, and you're writing as well. You have another book uh, going on. I am. I'm writing a book um, called I Quit Everything that's sort of a pandemic memoir about quitting everything. Um, and <laughs> hence, the, that, hence the title. Exactly. And I'm, and I'm also working uh, slowly on a, a novel based on the life of one of the 
uh, deceased members of the Symbionese Liberation Army who who kidnapped Patricia Hearst. Um, that's a little bit to the side now while I finished the first book. But but yeah, I mean, writing writing is my new creative outlet. Um, playing music was that for most of my life. Um, but writing is that's like, like that's where that my like time and creative energy are flowing now. Do you have certain times a day when you write? You know, for, for the past 10 years, I had like a full-time nine to five job as an academic advisor. And it was so hard to like figure out when to write. I was just always like trying this and trying that and getting up super early. Um, but right now my, my hours are so flexible with the work that I'm doing at the bookstore and I'm teaching at night. So I have been writing every morning, like eight to 11, eight 30 to 1130. This is, I mean, I'm only like two weeks into this. That's good though. Amazing. Yeah, I need to do that amazing. to have the time. And I just, I call it like the bubble. I'm like, I'm going into the bubble, like no social media phone is off, not checking. Good. Email. Good. Even if I'm just staring at the screen, I'm like, I'm showing up to write and that feels really, really good. <laughs> just to have you, that time. You do this at home? Yeah, just at home. But for now, like I'm, I'm on a good routine. I have a pretty short deadline for I quit everything. So, um, that was my next question is if you have a deadline, when's, your, yeah, when's I mean, the deadline? Um, I, I'm, I'm, I need to finish the book, uh, by the end of September and then it's coming out in fall 23. So yeah, that is motivating. That's great. And then you got your novel after that. And then I'll, and then I'll start working again on that. Well, that's fantastic. Do you listen to a lot of music at home, by the way? Yeah, I do. Um, lately. Yeah. I, I kind of go through like stages where I'm listening to certain kinds of things. So for a really long time until recently, I was just listening to a lot of concept albums. I just like got on a kick listening to concept albums. Um, and now listening to more, and this is, and this is really, this is really led by what Jake, what my husband Jake is listening to. Um, like a lot of like, like 20th century orchestral music. Um, like we're going to listen to like Philip Glass. Do you actually sit and listen to it like as your activity or do you sort of put it on while you're doing other stuff? Well, I listen, sometimes I'll just like listen to the radio or listen to a Spotify playlist when I'm, you know, whatever doing chores or around the house. But like one of my favorite things to do is just like sit down and listen to music. Um, and so it's a lost art. It's a lost art doing that. And it was lost for me for so many years, but I think the pandemic kind of brought that back as like, what's a thing besides watching Netflix that we can do tonight? And, um, and I think that's where the concept album thing kind of came up as like yeah. a, thing, a thing to do. Like we're going to lie down, you know, or sit down and just listen. That's and I, awesome. I like, you know, I like listening with other people. I mean, that's why I, I don't really listen to very many podcasts because I always, I would, if like I could listen with someone, <laughs> like sit down and listen to it together. Um, I don't, we'll have I don't a listening really- party for your episode. Okay. That sounds good. I think, Cause I would definitely listen to it then, but yeah, I, I like group 
listening. It's, um, I, I don't know, sort of conditioned to do that really young. Cause that's, you know, that's what we did when we were kids or teenagers is they get together and listen to records together. What were the, what were the concept albums you're listening to? Oh, like so many concept albums. So, um, uh, like so many. Um, so let's see, we listened to ELO's time and, um, I like that album. Yeah. It's got some good songs on it. It's, um, it's, it's, that's a funny one to, to pull yeah. out. Yeah. And I, I like ones like, that really like try to tell a story. Like, um, we listened to Elias of Sun Hello. Um, we listened to, um, Frank Sinatra. Oh, oh, um, what's it called? I was just looking at it. Um, oh. there's a there's a new re-release of of uh, this concept album of his from like the late '60s that I was just reading about this. And of course, now oh, Watertown. It's Watertown, right? Watertown. That's the yeah. one. Yeah, that was one of the ones. Um, listen to uh, the Redheaded Stranger by Willie Nelson, which also has some like great songs and like a really a really good story. And yeah, I can't remember, but there were so many. Like just for a while, we're just like listening to one every week. Oh, what's the um, Pretty Things one? Um, SF Sorrow. Yeah, SF Sorrow, which some people say is the first, the first concept album. But right. yeah, I mean, a lot of a lot of that takes me like out of my like comfort zone genre wise. It's maybe like maybe not the kind of stuff. That some of it's like way more prog than what I would usually listen to. But I just like I just got really got really into it. It was super fun. Oh, the composer I was trying to think of earlier was Messian. We've been like Jake's been obsessed with Messian lately, so we've been like listening to a lot of that. So yeah, I feel like I kind of have weird listening habits at home. I don't, yeah. But that's great though, because because it's funny. Like my daughter would say, "What what do you what did you do when you were my age? Like when we were in high school?" I'm like, I don't know. I'd have friends over and we listen to records. We play ping pong and listen to records. Uh-huh. And uh, and it's just like, hey, you want me to put? You know, I could put a stereo in your in your room. No, it's okay. I'll listen to my, you know, AirPods or my Bluetooth or whatever and make my own playlists. So the yeah. idea of like, but when we're like on a long car drive, then I'm like, all right, now we're going to listen to some albums. Yeah. I love doing that. I love when like the whole family's on a car trip together. And I always tell people to, to tell people in my family, like bring stuff to share, to listen to. And so it's always fun to see like what people bring, like this podcast or this album. Right. I love that. But yeah, when you've got them captive like that, then you can totally do it. But I think, I think I feel like the resurgence of vinyl is sort of a reaction to everything becoming so caught up and fragmented and iTunes and YouTubes and all of that, because like you get, it's harder to not listen to a full side of music when you're, um, you know, listening to a record, like it's not as uninterrupted as a CD because you got to turn it over. But on the other hand, you're less likely to lift the needle than you are to sort of push stop on something. Yeah, absolutely. I think it is more conducive to like a long, thoughtful listen. So, and what's, what's the last great meal that you've made? I really liked what I made for dinner tonight. Um, it was basically like a stir fry with shiitake mushrooms and ginger, bok choy, some toasted sesame oil. Mm. It was brilliant. Oh, it's um, scallions. Yeah. Lots of fresh ginger. That was really good. I love cooking. I, now that I'm not working full time anymore, I feel like I have a little more energy and time to cook. And that, like, that was also an effect of the pandemic of just like spending a little bit more time on meals. And I love that. I love, I love cooking dinner almost every day. 
Do you cook more than you bake? Yeah, I cook more than I bake. I don't bake that much anymore. Um, I sort of have a professional background in baking. It's been a long time, but, um, but yeah, I'm more drawn. I'm more drawn to cooking and I mean, it's more of like an everyday kind of thing. Like I will make some cookies or a cake or a pie once in a while, but, but cooking happens every day. Thank you so much. It's great to talk to you on in this format, as well as any other format that I see you in in person. Um, I'll see you around town, even though you won't be uh, using your drumsticks anymore. Um, <laughs> For sure. And I, and I look forward to uh, the stuff you're doing at Bookends and Beginnings as well and reading more of your writing because it's wonderful. So thanks so much, Frida, and I'll talk to you soon. All right. Sounds good. Thank you, Mark. That's it for episode 43 of Carol Pop. Thanks so much to Frida Love Smith for taking us into her world of rock and food and writing. Make sure you have her memoir, Red Velvet Underground from Agate Publishing. And be sure to pick up the two excellent Sunshine Boys albums, Blue Music and Work and Love. They, along with Red Velvet Underground, can be ordered from the band's website, sunshineboys.net. You also should make sure you have the new vinyl reissue of Blake Baby's acclaimed 1990 album, Sunburn. You can get it in leaf green or black vinyl. Follow Frida Love Smith on Twitter and Instagram at Frida Love Smith, F-R-E-D-A-L-O-V-E-S-M-I-T-H. Carol Pop is produced by the sunshine man himself, Chris Swake. I'm Mark Caro. Please follow me on Twitter at Mark Caro, at M-A-R-K-C-A-R-O, and visit the Carol Pop website, carolpop.com, for posts about music, movies, and food, and also this Carol Pop podcast. Please share, subscribe, and tune in again next week for another Carol Pop conversation. Thanks. Thanks.